If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to kind of follow through um, uh, that passage today. If you need a Bible, you can just raise your hand, and we'd be glad to hand you a Bible. We're going to read a lot of Scripture actually today from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, so either pull it up on your Bible app uh, or borrow one of those Bibles. It'll be on the screen as well, but sometimes it's easier to look right there in front of you. Uh, a few years ago, I was working at a church in Virginia Beach. It was the church that... Um, Bonnie and I were serving. I was the youth minister there before we moved to Newburn in 2008. And during one of our weekly staff meetings, uh, the preacher there, my boss, um, read from Acts chapter 13. Now, just the context of, of this is uh, Paul and Barnabas um, had started their first missionary journey, and they stop in a town called Pisidian Antioch. There's a couple of different Antiochs, but this is the one that's in modern-day Turkey. And on the Sabbath, as was especially Paul's habit, who was a, a Jewish man, um, who was uh, on, on the road to becoming a, the Jew of Jews, like he was on the fast track, young and upcoming in the Jewish faith. So he would go to the Jewish synagogue, and there he would teach about using Jewish teachings and scriptures. He would start with um, the Old Testament and talk about um, how that all leads up to Jesus. And that's what he's doing here in Acts chapter 13. Uh, he talks about how God had blessed the Israelites in Egypt, and then he talked about the time of the judges, and then he gets into the life of David, which, as you know, we've been studying as a church. And, and I remember sitting in this staff meeting, and our preacher read this verse from Acts chapter 13, verse 36. It says, Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, and he was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. Now, this was at a time in my life when I was trying to figure out exactly where God was leading me. You know, am I supposed to stay at this church? Am I going to stay in ministry? I kind of had gone to that church a little bit unsure. It wasn't really a crisis of faith. It was more of a crisis of vocation. God, what do you want me to do for my life? Uh, I'm in my, uh, at this time when I went there, I was in my 30s. My, my daughters had just been born. And so I was kind of in that phase of trying to figure out exactly what God wanted me to do. And um, what I heard there was this phrase, and it didn't hurt that King David has the same name that I do, right? So it kind of reads pretty, pretty naturally for me, right? Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. Like, what a, what a pretty good mission statement for my life. I just want to serve my generation as well as I can. Uh, I want to serve God's purpose in my generation as well as I can. And then when I'm done, I'm just going to, I'll, I'll check out, right? I'll, uh, my body will also decay. And it was from kind of that point forward, I felt like I had a clear calling from God. Uh, and it was to not stay at that church, but to leave there to move somewhere. And I di honestly didn't know it was going to be Newburn. I might have reconsidered if I'd known it was Newburn. I'm kidding. It's just a joke. It's just a joke. Actually, Newburn was kind of my Nineveh for a while. Like, God, really? Newburn? But now we love it, you know, 15 years later. But this verse kind of became um, a life verse for me, right? Uh, anybody here have a life verse, something that you can kind of go back to when, when things get a little dicey or you're unsure, you can kind of fall back to a place or a, something that God's calling you to do. Serve God's purpose. For me, serve God's purpose in my generation for the rest of my life. Matter of fact, I've told Bonnie that I'd like for this verse to be read at my funeral because I want that 
to be what my life is really about, right? I've told her also I want a really sad funeral, you know? <laughs> she said, oh, no, we're going to have a party, right? <laughs> so do you have a life verse? Do you have a, something or a passage that gives you kind of a mandate or direction for how you're going to live your life? So when I get caught up in life, begin to question my purpose, I always go back to this idea. When David had served God's purpose in his generation, I want to do the best I can to serve God's purpose in my generation. And then when I'm done, I'm done, right? And it helps me to focus on what I believe God wants me to do for, for my life. And how I'm going to do that comes from a different verse that I had kind of adopted, kind of my mission statement for ministry it comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, because we loved you, Paul says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Like, that's a mantra for my life and how I want to live and how I want to do ministry. I don't want to just get up and preach at people. I want to share life with people. Right? I want to do it from a, a place of relationship where, where we're, um, we're trying to go on this path together, Right? I could just preach the gospel, but I'd rather do what Paul's saying here, share my life with the people that I get to do church and life with. So when I get, when I get bogged down in the details, when I have to talk to the city of Newburn or contractors or, you know, then I remind myself that serving God in my generation is really about loving the people around me. I don't just want to share the gospel with others. That's a good start, but I want to do it out of sharing life with others. So do you have a clear idea of what God wants to do in you and through you? It'd be a pretty good goal for next year, wouldn't it? Decide on maybe a life verse or a, a verse that sort of directs the mission of your life. And I think King David did, and that's what we're going to look at in 2 Samuel chapter 7 today. This morning we're going to wrap up this series through the life of David. It's been, it's been action-packed, hasn't it? A lot of good things, a lot of really good conversations this week that I heard about that were happening in our small groups. Last week we talked about David and Bathsheba, obviously David's sin before God and his repentance and restoration. Next week we're going to start four weeks in the, we're not actually done with David exactly, we're going to do four weeks in the Psalms, some of the songs that came out of those times in David's life. But today we're going to wrap up just the look at David's life in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. How, did, how could David survive the wilderness? We talked about a couple weeks ago in the sin in which he got entangled. Well, I think he had a clear idea, a clear mandate of what God was asking him to do, right? Who God was asking him to be. So David asks Nathan, the prophet, whether God would approve, in chapter 7, um, the building of the temple. A permanent structure for worship. Instead of the ark residing in a tent, David sees that he's, he's living in a palace, right, with walls of cedar. He wants to do the same thing for uh, God and for the, tabor, uh, and for the um, ark, right, and for the implements of worship, a permanent structure. And Nathan kind of gets excited about that, and he actually speaks a little prematurely and tells David to move forward with the plan. But that night, God reveals to Nathan that that's not actually God's plan. That was Nathan's, or David's plan, that Nathan and Sylvia be okay. And we learned later that David had been 
uh, too much of a warrior. It wasn't really about David's sin, but he had been too involved in, in shedding of blood and been a part of spilling too much blood to be the one to build the house of prayer, the Bible says. And then God speaks to David and his future through the prophet Nathan. Let's pick it up in chapter 7, verse 8. God says, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from, this, from the pasture, from tending flock, and appointed you ruler over my people, Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, and they, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. So God first reminds David that he has kept his promises to David. He has become king of Israel. He has defeated his enemies time and time again. In other words, God's saying, the promises I made to you when you were just a shepherd of your father's flocks have all come true. So you can trust what I'm about to tell you will also be true. Now, this isn't really what today's lesson I, I don't think is about, but the same is true for us today, right? We always want to know, what's going to happen, God? Where are you leading me? Where, where are we going? What, what am I supposed to do next? Well, listen, our past victories are the best predictors of our future victories, right? Where God has brought us from and the ways that he has moved and, and helped us get to the point where we are, that's a, that's a great indicator or predictor in, or it form, informs our future victories. If God has kept his promises to you in the past, which I know he has, then you can trust him for the future, not only in this life, but on into eternity. And that's exactly what God is going to say to David. Pick it up, second part of verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, and your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human beings. But my love will never be taken away from him as long as, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever." So God's promise goes well beyond David's life, right? He, he mentions when, you, when you've died and you're buried with your ancestors, then I'm going to raise up somebody from your family who's going to continue your name, that your name will be blessed throughout generations. When you've passed from this life, God says, not only will you and your name live on, but through your descendants, God says, I will establish an eternal kingdom. Now, we're going well beyond men's Kingdoms. We're going well beyond earthly things at this point, right? So through Solomon, who isn't named here, who isn't born yet, God will not only build the temple, but through Solomon's offspring will come the one who will establish an eternal kingdom. 
one that will endure forever. For the first time, David is promised that his legacy will not just be an earthly kingdom, but an eternal kingdom. And we know that what God was promising David was that through his descendants, the Messiah would arrive and establish an eternal kingdom. We're going to look at David's um, family tree during the month of December and connect some more of these dots, right? This is the first time in Scripture where we see the promise to David that through his family, the Messiah would come. Now, this isn't too different than the promise God made to Abraham. Through your offspring, all nations will be blessed. So, so here's David, a descendant of Abraham. So God's keeping that promise, right, through Abraham, now on to David. Um, and he had promised Abraham that, it, that through his family there would be an eternal kingdom. You remember those connect-the-dot puzzles, right? Uh, when you are a kid, here's one I found. This is a simple one. Can you? You can kind of tell what that one is, right? I finished it for you. Here it is. Uh, all done. Yep. <laughs> so at first you just see these dots, right? Um, but as you begin to fill in the dots, as you begin, begin to connect those dots, you see a picture of something emerge. And that's what God's doing through the Old Testament, specifically through David. He's connecting some of these dots. He's beginning to reveal his plan from Abraham to Moses and now David and now David onto his family tree that will lead to Jesus. The picture is becoming clearer and clearer. The dots are being connected. God will establish an eternal kingdom through David's family. And even though David didn't see the whole picture, he's pretty excited about it. Right? He's ecstatic. Just for context, let me just say I believe that this prophecy and David's response happened more near the end of David's life. Most likely chapter 7 relates an event that occurred fairly late in David's reign, but the, uh, the writer here uh, placed it here because it kind of connects the dots between the kingdom and why, um, and the palace and all of those things. So this, this even happened after David has moved into the palace in Jerusalem. Most of the wars had ended and after the whole David and Bathsheba debacle. So let's think about this. I believe David's prayer. So God reveals through Nathan these things about David and his... Um, offspring and his family tree. And I believe David's prayer in response here that we're going to look at is uh, a, a great example of how to respond to God's blessings in our lives. Right, so we can learn some things to, to, as to how we, how we respond when, things, when God does answer our prayers, right? Especially in light of David's brokenness, especially in light of the, the wars and the blood that's been shed. You know, David, I don't think necessarily expect, was expecting this. And so in cha chapter 7, verses 18 and following, David responds. It says in verse 18, Then King David went and, and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, Sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, Sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. 
So the first response, I think, that we see that we can kind of connect with as we connect with God is thanksgiving for God's undeserved favor. Right? David recognizes that his life, his reign could have ended at any time. God has the authority, just as he had with Saul, to remove David as king, to anoint someone else, someone else's family. There's no, see, I think Saul kind of got hung up in this idea that he and his family, he's the king, he was the first king of Israel, and he would be king until he is, and then his family would be king. But that's not how God works. God picks the right person at the right time. But what God's saying to David is, I am going to establish your family Maybe not exactly the way you're thinking, but your family is going to be, the result of your family is going to be something even greater. And so David responds to this favor, this unmerited favor, this undeserved favor with thanksgiving. He's almost giddy. How can I gain your favor? I'm just a guy. I'm just a shepherd boy. I'm a flawed human. After all that has transpired, you still want to bless me? See, one of the reasons that I believe David is called a man after God's own heart is because he's always aware of his place compared to God Almighty. He's not perfect. We, We recognize that. He doesn't always get it right. He makes lots of mistakes. But he's always aware of himself and who God is. Psalm 8, he says, David writes, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Again, Saul, God made him king of Israel, and he did okay until he stopped following God's plan. He got a little full of himself, didn't he? He thought he knew better than God. He began to believe the hype about himself. He lost God's favor, and he lost his life, and eventually the kingdom was given to David and his descendants. And one of the ways that you can avoid losing God's favor is by remembering who you are and remembering who God is. Look, our world, our culture would have us believe that we are the center of our own worlds, that everything revolves, orbits around us, right? And as long as we stay in our orbit and we do what we think uh, we should do for ourselves, right, then we're going to be okay. But our culture would have us believe that we are the center of those worlds. But we, as Christians, acknowledge God as creator and sustainer. Sometimes we as Christians are accused of being arrogant because... We believe we have all the answers, and sometimes it's true. We, we can come across with too much bravado sometimes. But if you think about it, which, which view is more arrogant? That there is a God who created everything and has provided for our well-being, and even though we don't deserve it, he's provided forgiveness through Jesus, and we just try to honor him the best we can. We're not perfect like David isn't perfect. But we acknowledge God and his unmerited favor. Which is more arrogant, that or that we are the center of our own worlds and that we're the purveyors of our own morality and destiny? See, our job is not to convince everyone we are right. Our job is to simply acknowledge God and point others to him. 
Isn't that what David's saying here, Psalm 8? What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Understanding our place, being thankful for that. I, I love what we sang earlier. I called, and God, you answered. You came to my rescue. I didn't deserve it. There's nothing that I had done that, that would make you want to love me. Lord, matter of fact, I had messed everything up. But you came to my rescue. See, David gets it. And that's who we need to be. We need to acknowledge God and be thankful for who he is. The next part of David's prayer teaches us something else. Look at verse 22. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you, re whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. See, the second response I see in, in David is something that we probably could learn from is that praise for God and his greatness. For David, God's goodness was proof of his greatness. His natural response when confronted with God's goodness was to praise God. No other so-called God speaks to his people, David says. With their own ears, they've heard God speak. No other God has defeated all the enemies. So David's natural response to the greatness of God is praise. Back to Psalm 8, verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. See, when we are aware that we have been saved from our own destruction... Right? But because of our own sin, we deserve punishment. The natural thing to do when we recognize that God has saved us, we're thankful, and then we praise God for who he is. When we acknowledge God's undeserved favor, our natural response is to praise. In my life, be lifted high. In my world, right, be lifted high. And finally, David prays, verse 25, And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then the people will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy as you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. So David acknowledges and is thankful for the, the grace, right, the unmerited favor, undeserved favor of God. And then he praises God for who he is. And then finally, David asks for God's continued favor. Do you notice that? The final part of David's prayer, he asked that God would continue to give him 
and his family favor. God, would you just be true to your word? It's not that David doesn't believe God. He's just simply confirming. And maybe he's so overwhelmed, right, that he has to convince himself. So he says it out loud. He prays it back to God. He's simply confirming God's blessing and asking that God would be true to his word. And we kind of do that, don't we? God, reveal yourself to me. God, show yourself to me in this part of my life or in this difficult time. Let me see you working, God. And David prays, when you do keep your word, it will only make your name greater. So when God does answer our prayers, when God does come to our rescue, then we just simply acknowledge it's because of his greatness. David leans in on the fact that God's promises are trustworthy. So how does he know this? Because God has kept his word previously, right? The greatest predictor of what God will do is what he's already done. God is trustworthy. David is asking God to continue to trust him. Even though he's human, he's flawed, keep trusting me, Lord. And it's incredible, as we read Psalm 8, the parallel here again, verse 5 says, you have made them a little lower, talking about human beings, you've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. See, God's plans have always been enacted through human beings. Seems like a terrible plan, but it's up to us. Right? Why would you choose us? Isn't that, isn't that kind of what David's saying? It's, it's, it's crazy. And the greatest predictor, again, of God, of what God will do in your life is to look back and see what he's already done. I really want us to go home with that today. You can trust God because he has been trustworthy in the past. So in 2006 or 7, I began praying that God would show me how to serve his purposes in my generation. And it pretty quickly turned um, door started to open for church planting. So in 2008, we agreed to move to Newburn and start this church. And 15 years later, we're still here. Not just us, but the church is still here, right? God's favor. God's leading us to the next chapter. The greatest predictor of the next 15 years is to look back and see how faithful God's been to us the first 15. God will always be faithful. We, we just have to step into that faithfulness and continue to follow him. The other thing I see here as we kind of close out this morning is that David's prayer is a pretty good outline of how we should pray. Right? You could pray through this prayer in this way. Start with thanksgiving, thanking God for his undeserved favor. I don't understand why God loves me, but he does. I don't understand why God saves me, but he does. I'm so thankful. Continue with praise for who God is and what he has done. Lord, you are my God, and great is your name. Even in the midst of my mess and brokenness, Lord, you have revealed yourself as good 
and great. And end with a petition or asking God to continue to work in you and through you. God, will you just have your will done? Will you just allow me to serve your purposes in my generation and maybe even the next? Till I'm die and I'm buried with my ancestors. That's my desire. That was David in this prayer in response to God's blessing. And I believe that's who we should be as a church. Each one of us. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for how you've loved us. And Lord, we're just in awe of who you are and how much you have done to bring us to right where we are today. And Lord, like David, we're a little overwhelmed by the idea that you even know our names, let alone have prepared a way for us to be brought back to you. So God, I just pray that you would move in us and through us. We're so thankful for how you have um, been so gracious to us. And for that, Lord, we praise you for your goodness, for your greatness. Not because of anything we've done, but, Lord, because of your mercy, we have the opportunity to know you more. Lord, we just ask that tomorrow we can follow you a little more. That this week we can just be more and more about your presence and your will in our lives. That by your Spirit, that we would grow into exactly who you've called us and created us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.